Medic! Hey, welcome back, everybody. Brand new episode for 2019 of the Medic Up podcast. And uh, it's a good one today. You're not going to want to miss it. In fact, it's a two-parter. And I am absolutely one of the luckiest people in the medical podcast arena, if you even want to call it that, to uh, have my guest on today. And my guest is going to be Mr. Joe Connolly, the author of Bringing Out the Dead. If you've been in EMS, you are aware of that movie. You are aware of the book. You are aware of the characters. And we're going to talk about them. And we're going to talk about how he, how Joe came to, to write the, the stories. Um, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. It's going to be great. And uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. It's going to be a two-part episode because I really wanted to talk to Joe about um, his work he does with a relief organization called NYC Medics. He's one of the one of the founding members of it, and it is a great story. So, a couple things really quick. Um, Medic Up has some sponsors now, and uh, we are really lucky. And these guys, they're friends. These guys are friends. They're local medics who, who own some businesses, and uh, they're gracious enough to, to sponsor us. So... Real quick, I want to tell you guys about them. Fuel the Machine Apparel, okay? Fuel the Machine Apparel, they are they're a t-shirt company, and they are first responder owned. It's it's They're great. Uh, Phil is a great guy, a uh, solid medic, uh, and, he, and he's a friend. Uh, and Fuel the Machine Apparel is based on the idea of it's not just a brand, it's a lifestyle. Um, they are pro-health, pro-first responder, pro-military. They just they believe you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And like I said, first responder, paramedic owned and operated. All the designs are created and printed by them in the U- in the USA. They have their own quality control. Um, so go check them out. Uh, Fuel the Machine Apparel at www.fuelthemachineapparel.com. That's all one word. Um, listen up. You know, Phil is a great guy. Solid medic, like I said. One of the most fit dudes I know. And these designs are awesome. Uh, right now, my personal favorite is the Uberlance t-shirt. It, it's awesome. They, he just put out a new one, and it's uh, it's called the Death Fighter. It is, it's outstanding. I would wear that anywhere. And seriously, these aren't those cheesy EMS fire department t-shirts like Race the Reaper or I Fight What You Fear or like my favorite garbage one of all time, Paid to Save Your Ass, Not Kiss It. So go check them out. Check him out for yourself. See what he's got out there. New designs all the time. www.fuelthemachineapparel.com. And uh, just like just like he says, man, be the solution, not the problem. And our other sponsor is uh, another good friend and uh, well-known internet guy. If you've ever heard of Skinny Medic, that's my boy. And uh, he has his own business, too, called Medical Gear Outfitters. And that's also, again, owned and operated by a paramedic with a mission to equip individuals with top quality supplies, training, and the mindset they need to empower themselves to respond in an emergency. Medical Gear Outfitters, man, they build first aid kits, individual first aid kits, any kind of kit you need. Okay, go check them out www.medicalgearoutfitters.com. They got pre made kits, kits you can build on your own. If you're looking for Stop the Bleed, Medical Gear Outfitters got you covered. You want to build your own kit to your own specs, they got the supplies you need, all the pouches, all the bags, anything you can think of. If you don't see it, contact them. They'll get it for you. They'll build it to what you need. Everything from the at-home first aid kit, bumps, bruises, scrapes, stings, individual uh, first aid kits for the first responder, uh, a work kit, a car kit. Um, bigger kits for like MCI, active shooter type stuff, they'll build it for you. 
if you like I said, if you don't see it, give them a just contact them. Contact them through the website www.medicalgearoutfitters.com. They'll hook you up. I'm going to put the link in the show notes to the website. You use this link, you're going to get 10% off just because you saw it you, you saw it here at the Medica podcast. So, remember, you never know when you'll be the first responder. Get the right gear and the right training, Medical Gear Outfitters. So, without further ado, Mr. Joe Connolly. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about the book and some other stuff you're involved in and just your experiences coming up uh, because if people didn't know, um, Joe Connolly is the author of Bringing Out the Dead. So if you're a medic or an EMT and you've been in, you've been in the job any period of time, you've probably heard of the book, definitely probably seen the movie or heard someone talk about the movie and then maybe went back like myself and read the book and went, wow, everything they always say, the book is better than the movie. And I think, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, a writer is a writer, um, that they can, you know, paint that picture. And then so much of this book, uh, and the story is relatable to anybody who's been in, been on the job and for any period of time, whether you're a volley or you're part-time, full-time, you're in your 15th year or your 15th month, um, on the ambulance and in EMS in any capacity. So, so I really appreciate you sitting down today. Yeah, sure. Glad to be here. Awesome. I like your podcast, and I'm uh, happy to help out. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, some of the standard questions before we really get into the book. What uh, what really got you into EMS? I mean, what got you? What got you to the point of writing a novel about your experiences and or or building your experiences into the novel? You know, I always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid, and uh, I dropped out of college and traveled around the country doing a lot of odd jobs and factories and delivering pizzas in Colorado, painting houses down by you in South Carolina. And I ended up, I was in Tenning Bar in Dublin in Ireland, and I was reading this book called The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham about this ambulance driver in World War One, Italy. And... I said, wow, that might be an interesting thing to do. I figured not only would I be helping people out, doing something interesting, but I would, uh, it would give me <clears throat> food to write about, life and death, which I thought were important knowledge for any writer to have. So I left Dublin and I came back and uh, started writing with New York City EMS. Um, you know, the book started out, I guess, a couple years into riding those streets in New York and seeing things that no one else I thought was seeing. And I started just writing down stories. They were just first person stories about Joe Connolly. And, uh, went back to school, was taking some writing classes at Columbia University. And then eventually, the uh, the uh, those that first sto- first person nonfiction book that I thought I was re- going to write those first two years at EMS, I think I had done too good a job of walling off the darkest stuff, 
is you have to find a wall in order to keep doing doing your work. And um, I developed a guy named Frank Pierce who has no walls and is basically a mirror of what he sees. And in in and when the when the book opens and the movie even opens, they put that uh, not a disclaimer, the kind of the lead in it says this film takes place in the in Hell's Kitchen or in New York in the early nineties. And I think uh and that to me, I was just getting my start I got my start in maybe the early nineties, more mid nineties, because I was really only starting to do ride alongs as an as a explorer in ninety two, ninety three, and got my EMT in ninety six. And, you know, uh, seeing the film and and being aware of the book, you know, realizing that that was taking place. You say, you know, the first two years, you know, you have to kind of build up those type of walls when you see bad stuff. Now, you know, where I was in suburban Philadelphia, I wasn't really seeing crazy stuff. And probably the medics protected me. I went to school in the northern tier of, of, um, of Pennsylvania out in the woods. So, I mean, again... Uh, people would say, "Oh, that's the bad section of you know Williamsport." I'm like, oh, "I'm from the suburbs of Philly. You know, you gotta, you really gotta impress me with the bad section." Um, w- when you say that, you know, looking back now, you know, now in you know 21st century 2019, it's very popular to talk about all of that stuff that you've had to wall off, or that we actually were affected by it with all the Code Green campaign stuff and. You know, rereading the book and seeing the film every once in a while. I mean, it's like, wow. You know, did he know? Did he know he was kind of laying the groundwork for what everybody is kind of suffering or has the potential to suffer? You know, having human emotion and having that first person being exposed to it every shift or for you know long, extended periods of time. So, yeah, yeah. No, clearly, I suffered from some PTSD during that time and. <clears throat> And yes, the book, it, looking back now, it's almost a, a piece of historical fiction. The city has changed so much. And, and back then, in the late 80s, when I was going, <clears throat> you know, there was record homicide rates. And there was the AIDS epidemic, which is really hard to explain unless you were down there in, in Midtown and on that west side during those years. You know, it was truly like a plague. And um, <clears throat> it's... Uh, you know, it was an extreme situation with just a lack of EMS personnel and, and vehicles and just everything seeming to be breaking down. Um, and my goal was to really push the reader over three days <clears throat> and push that narrative and that, that um, congestion of calls. So that by the end of those three days, that reader is sitting in that ambulance with you. And I think the movie was very ambitious in trying to do the same thing. Um, But, I mean, some of the things that happen and the, you know, the PTSD and the different ways in which stress comes out and surfaces and, and needs an outlet and, and everybody who works this job, whether it's in the suburbs or rural where I am now, um, I think it's an important conversation to have. And I'm, I'm glad that it is being discussed now in a way it wasn't back then. And, um, I think that's really important. 
Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. You know, you look at, like I've said, everybody I think, and who's been in the job for any period of time really is either relating to the characters or, I mean, I, I've said for a long time, I think anybody on the ambulance can't has, has known one of those characters has known a Tom walls has known, has known a Marcus. Like I can peg those at my service, like perfectly. Uh, and then, you know, I think also people say, well, you know, oh, I'm a paramedic. I've seen a lot of bad stuff. I am Frank Pierce. And it's like, well, you know, maybe I don't think I'm Frank Pierce. I think I'm more, I think I'm more Larry, you know, I'm, a, I'm more of a Larry. It's going to be Chris calling the shots one day. And, you know, it's, you know, what the, you know, the priority being, I got to, I can't eat the same thing twice in two nights. And, and even with that, as far as just, you know, the whole setting of the book being over, a, you know, a weekend of full moons. And by that Sunday night, you're just exhausted. You're exhausted. You've run every call. You feel like you're the only call. You're the only ambulance available for calls. You know, it's it's every repetitive, you know, you're like, oh, when is the real emergency? And, you know, what, why do I have to deal with this? And, uh, you know, it's it's extremely relatable. And, like, I hear it's funny, you know, I, I – I, I mean, I probably have a little problem with the internet. I'm kind of addicted to it. And I see, I, I, yeah, memes are always pretty, I, they're pretty funny to me, especially the EMS ones. And like, there's one that kind of compares like the, the super uber professional uh, medic. And then just like the whacker who's always like, they're always on, they want to wear the goofy t-shirts. And it's like, it's one of them. Is, I was like, oh, I'm going to write this guy and tell him he's stupid. One said, like, loves bringing out the dead. Like, it's bad. Like, it's bad to have, like, it's bad to understand the book, understand the story, understand the characters. I was like, man, that's like a textbook I should put on my reading list for my students. Um, you know, some people are like, well, what's the, I think when we talked before, you said, you know, some people read it as a way of not to do things. And I said, man, you need to read it as a way of this is why we're at where we are now. So, and then, then there's the opposite side to it. There's an absolute cult following to it. Like I said, everybody can relate to the, the characters or the situations or that type of weekend. So, Sure. Well, I, I've heard several paramedic schools that um, make the book a part of their required reading. It's, it's tough uh, when people, you know, I tell people about the book, I always say, I'm not frank. But, I mean, I think a part of me is, and, and I think part of all of us who do it for any length of time have have those nights in <clears throat> which nothing works. And you just don't seem to to get that good call that comes along and wipes everything out. <clears throat> but I would say that, you know, Frank really, in a lot of ways, he's not a, a real character in that he doesn't have any walls. And I purposely sent him out there to feel everything. And in the end of the book, I, I consider it a happy ending, but it's a pretty simple concept. He just goes to sleep. You know, he just finally gets a good night's sleep to go and start the next day. <clears throat> and I think people, I think a lot, and as somebody who's worked night shift for the predominant, you know, time of my career, I get that. Uh, I get that uh, in the, the simple way, like, man, if I just, just let me get a good, eight hours. I don't sleep eight hours anymore, even though I don't, I don't work full time in the, on the ambulance. I, I don't, I wish I could sleep eight hours. Um, but it's also, I don't also not sleep eight hours because, you know, 
flashbacks or PTSD stuff. It's just, I don't know why. Probably stress and just life in general. But I absolutely, it's, again, it's 100% relatable. Uh, and I think that's what gets people into this book. And especially since, you know, there's all, there's more writers out there now doing the first per. Well, the, the, the switch has been to the first person. Let me tell my story about the ambulance. And if that helps somebody, you know, I, I want someone to get the help that I didn't have. Uh, you know, there's been a few books out the last couple of years, A Thousand Naked Strangers. Um, I can't remember. That's the most recent one. I think Kevin Hazard and I had him written down, but can't find it. But um, yeah, you know, yeah, the, the, yeah, that first person thing, and people are reading it going, and I think it's doing two things. It's saying, you know, great, this is a, and when you talk to them, they're like, man, this was a creative outlet for me, just like the podcast is a creative outlet for me to to reduce that stress. And like I said, I get to talk to cool people about the job, and and hopefully it helps my students and then people who've been in any length of time or, you know, the veteran salty EMS people or the people just starting out saying, Hey, I feel the same way too. That's normal. And um, you know, this is where I'm, where I can take it. So was it, was writing, was writing the story, was it therapeutic for you in any sense, or was it just let's develop characters and mix my experience into this and write and just tell a good story? It's hard to say. I mean, during the writing of it, there comes a point where, uh, you really have to be able to separate yourself from the work and turn into the director, you know, arranging the facts and, and being able to sort of objectively. So the catharsis that I hoped writing the book would would bring me didn't really happen, but um, it's interesting being on the movie set and actually seeing Nicolas Cage play Frank. And, it, you know, there's a couple times in which I actually stood in for the character, um, the character of Rose, and seeing him staring at me as if I was her. You know, the, the character of the woman, the girl he couldn't save. That was probably more, I guess, uh, redemptive than anything during the writing of the book. Wow, that, that's fantastic fantastic the um another thing uh that i loved about the book were the uh like the vignettes at the end of the chapters and it's like a one page just kind of again very relatable stories of calls that frank would run um like the there's the one that was a, a fire in the park and they find out it was actually a person who had been set on fire and books were thrown on top of them and uh, Frank takes a he takes a book. It's the Fishing in the Great Lakes by Robert Gulliver, and he keeps the book. Uh, and then that kind of happens again on a car wreck of uh, I think uh, a car wreck where uh, some teenagers were killed. And it, there's a Saint Christopher statue he finds on the road, and he, he it says he, he reverently puts it on the ambulance dashboard at, on his following shifts. Um, is that? Is that the fiction part, or is that based on stuff that really happened? Oh, that's all based on real events, you know. And all the events through the nights are based on real events, but they're adapted or changed or made into a composite to to push the story I wanted to. Which was a lot. Of, a lot of the stories is just about flipping the conventions, you know 
breaking the credibility to to get people to understand the reader to understand and, and be in that place yes and and honestly the book was about 500 pages at one time there were so many stories i wanted to get in and and a lot of them just got in the way of the oh the the narrative and the drive you know i was trying to take place and so even though i took those pages out i still wanted to keep some of those stories in and those people in and really um I, part of the book is about saving lives not you know in deeds but in words and that even the people we lose we we kind of save them in our heads you know we keep a place for them all right uh, absolutely and you know back to the the kind of those two those two vignettes about the take keeping the book and the and the statue when i when i read those it floored me because uh years ago i had a call i had a bad motorcycle wreck and it was a guy and a girl and he was the guy was drunk and she was right on the back they had a bad wreck and ended up ejecting them both kind of into some a little a, a small wooded area on the side of the of side of the road and uh, i had had a i had a student with me i think I had a student with me and I sent her and my partner to go help this other, this person who was ejected further. My patient was in the ditch. He was the driver. He was prone. He was kind of, kind of snoring. So we kind of rolled him over and fixed his airway. Our rescue truck showed up. I was like, Hey, this guy needs, this guy's probably going to need an airway. So do, do your thing. And a, a highway patrolman grabbed my uniform and he said, your partner said, come with me right now. And I said, Okay. And I walk up, here's this, this, the rider had been ejected. She had hit a tree that was kind of felled. They were um, cutting trees down to build a subdivision in this little area. And um, she was, she was in cardiac arrest. She was traumatic arrest. So we start working her. We end up moving her, move her to the ambulance. And uh, back when we worked cardiac arrest on scene, but um, we worked her and, you know, in the process of the trauma, we're cutting her clothes off. And at the end of it, she, she didn't make it. Um, you know, we ended up calling it. And in the process uh, of cutting her clothes off, we, I found a, a key. It was a house key. It was in her back pocket. And she had hit this tree that was felled so hard that it had bent the house key. Uh, and I had, I had kept, that, I kept that house key for years, for years. And I didn't know why I did it. Um, it was just one of those things. And I think, you know, one year I finally just kind of got rid of it. Um, but it's, like you said, you know, you keep, you keep a place for those. And it was... One of those, that story, the story was horrible in the end because it came out of the news. It was like his 24th DUI, and, you know, it's like, ugh, you know, it was, it was a big to-do. Uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving got involved during the trial that he, that he obviously lived because, you know, how what's this, how's the saying go? God protects the drunk and the stupid. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was one of those, and when I read it, I was like, I'm not the only one. <laughs> it was like, it was, it was, I don't know if it was validating. I don't know if it was comforting. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was, it was unbelievable to read that. And I was like, that, uh, it still didn't explain why I kept it, but it explained the behavior, I guess. I don't know. So. Oh, sure. I think everybody who's done this job has, has that call. For me, for me, it was a police officer who was chasing a perp across a rooftop, and <clears throat> he was apparently pushed 
down into the shaft. And um, I just remember him down about three flights, and his he was laying on his on his radio in such a way that uh, it was keying it. And so his screams of pain, you know, were just echoing all around us. You know, we're standing on the top, and oh, it's just ESU was trying to trying to get him up, but and they were just being so careful because he was in so much pain. And I realized, you know, they just got to get him up. And I wanted to get down there, and they wouldn't let me. And oh, we just sort of watched him die from up top. By the time I finally did persuade them to get me down, it was too late. And I just remember being just blind with with uh, flashbacks and uh, couldn't sleep for weeks, you know. But everybody's different. Everybody has their own key, I guess you could say. And for instance, I was working up here. I started working way up in the Adirondacks where I live now. And one of my first calls was for a pretty bad accident, you know, in which the guy had died in. I didn't think that much about it at the time, honestly, because, you know, I'd seen so much. But the um, the woman who I was with, she just, um, she couldn't function. And she she had so many problems. Every time she would smell that leaking gas or any time she would smell diesel, you know, she would sort of have a little breakdown and she had to, she had to leave the job. And I didn't, I didn't recognize that. But she was going through that probably until it was too late. She probably could have gotten help earlier. Yeah, know? it's. It, I mean, it, not to use bad word. I mean, it's crazy how that works and how much we'd never. We really didn't see it um, when you were kind of immersed in those. Um, I guess maybe the high volume. I mean, you know, I can't compare to NYC EMS at the time in the nineties. You know, that high volume, high acuity, or maybe not even high acuity, but just shooting after shooting after, you know, over and over and over, or, you know, high crime rates or high violence rates in a small area. And then, you know, being the service that's just constantly responding to that. Like, there's no end to it. You know, we kind of, I kind of look at my year as, you know, there's cold and flu season, and then there's knife and gun season. And we always have, you know, the 100 deadly days of summer. That's how we, that's how I've looked at an EMS calendar, you know, for the last, you know, almost 25 years. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't know for a very long time. Uh, I felt that, you know, EMS didn't deserve to be able to say PTSD until I started, you know, really educating about doing education in general. And then having to research it and then seeing it come out and go, wow. And you say, you know, you hear, like you just said, somebody has that trigger, that diesel smell or a sound. And they relate it to that situation and it's that, it's that light switch and it turns it on and it shuts them down. Um, and then maybe they don't recognize it because of the stigma and everything else that Code Green really talks about. But um, still, I mean, again, a book like the, a book like this, really, I mean, it outlines it. Like normally somebody, I mean, it even it even happens in the book to an extent, you know. Uh, Tom's like, "Hey man, time to time to get off the truck, you know. Time for you, you can't drive anymore." Nowadays, you know, we kind of use code green as a verb. It's like, man, don't make me code green you. You're gonna, I'm gonna get you sent home, get you sent to therapy, or referred to the, 
you know, the employee assistant program for, you know, how you say what you say and how you act or, or what, at least you're looking for it now. You know, we, and again, typically MS people turn it into dark humor and go, oh, I'll code green your ass. It's like, no, don't make me do it. But, you know, at least I think people are looking out now. And like you're saying, you know, I wish I would have noticed it earlier. We could have got her some help. Maybe we would have kept our kept our good employee, kept our good medic. You know, they'd still be helping people. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, sure. And, and one of the the black humor funny things of the book is, and the movies is Frank wants to quit. He's trying to get fired. You know, <clears throat> but he can't. He can't leave himself. And his boss is like, I need you here tonight. I'll fire you tomorrow, Frank. I promise. <clears throat> and I think a lot of people may have worked in places where that's very true. <laughs> Maybe, especially when again, you guys, uh, the hospital-based EMS units in the were and the private services, not particularly NYC EMS, but. Um, Absolutely. I can hear some supervisors saying that, like, look, I know. Be really, I'll fire you tomorrow. I'll front you the sick time. You know, let's let's make a deal. Come on. I really need to. We need to get out there. We've got to keep the lights on in the building. Come on. So absolutely. Um, <laughs> I know. 1987, we all got a medal just for coming to work. Right. Thank you for your service. That's the, that's the thank you for your service or you're welcome for my service of, uh, of 2019. That's funny. Um, so what else? What is there anything in the book that you wish made it into the movie that you wanted people to maybe get maybe something to translate in there? I know when we talked before you said, you know, not all the flashbacks made it in really that underlying um story of Frank and Mona really didn't make it in. Uh I think the movie would have ended up being a little longer than it was. Um but is there anything you really wish like me for me personally there's a there's a scene where they're at the bar after they come off shift and it's just it's it's just they're just wild they're crazy it's all the medics gather there i wish that would have made it in maybe i mean i again i don't know i'm not a movie maker but i i wish that would have made it in because i still think there's again that's a very real thing that people do so yeah those bars that would stay open all night it'll be open at six in the morning when everybody got off their shift and all the public service people used to hang out. It was one of the Bronx, especially. But um, honestly, I couldn't be happier. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better director or just these great actors. Um, you know, and it was incredible to be on the set every day in the same streets that, um, you know, I had worked on. It was surreal, really. It was sort of three layers of reality going on there. What, what really happened, um, the changes I made to make the book work, and then these changes that the movie, and so for me to, you know, get to see some Scorsese's vision, and I really had to admire his ambition um, for not giving those flashbacks, for not giving any easy outs, for really putting that viewer, <laughs> taking them all the way. You know, it's just a, a hell ride. Right. It's three, it's three days of the busiest shifts you, you can think of um, with everything that comes along with them. And even the mundane stuff, like people, again, I think the EMS people who watch it get it. Like, hey, I don't do calls before my coffee. It's, it's tiny things like that. The food choices, uh, the way they get it, where they go around the city. Um, 
and it's I, I think I had said it before when I had first seen the movie, I I was laughing, and, and the person I was watching it with, she was like, I don't get why you're laughing. I'm like, I you're because you don't do this. It's not this isn't your world. Like this this is, and I really I really had only been in EMS maybe five years, and I was like, I get it. And then I hear my students who are sitting in class, they have, you know, zero EMS experience except for their ride outs and their clinical time and class time. Or, you know, they might be working part time at a service. They're like, oh, I watch, you got to watch Bringing Out, there's, you know, got to watch Bringing Out the Dead. You got to, you got to watch Mother Jugs and Speed. I'm like, you guys don't understand those movies. You're not even doing the job yet. I said, listen, watch it, at, watch it at year one and then watch it at year three or four and tell me what the difference is. And like people will come back and they're like, you're absolutely right. There's a big, I absolutely see so many different things. I said, all right, now we're going to worry about the movie. Read the book. I said, because the way the writing is in the book, you're going to get more out of it. And I'm like, read the book, read, read the character development, look at the other people who aren't in the movie and realize there's so much that you can, that, that you can draw from it. Uh, and people are like, that's, that's gotta be a memoir. I was like, it's as a novel and it's, it's fiction. I said, but it's obviously based on real stuff. This is somebody who's been there, done that. And th you know, they have that writer, that writing style is perfect. It's perfect to even have the, when you say it used to be 500 pages, paramedic attention span, not going to do it. <laughs> no, I would, <laughs> I would read all 500 pages. I would absolutely read it. Um, but you know, just the way the story, the character development, the story, it, it, like you said, even for the film, it feels like you're there for all three shifts and you're just beat down by the end of it. And again, happy ending, just wants to go to sleep. Just wants to go to sleep. Yes, I, what I thought they captured best in the movie was just that feeling and that intensity of that being in that seat. You know, because we, uh, in New York, you, you basically cover an area and you leave the hospital or the base <clears throat> at the start of your shift and you stay in that area. So you're in that ambulance with your partner, you know, with uh, those windows around you. It's, it's all night. You just run all night all around that place. You get to know it so well. I thought was, uh, oh, one story from the movie. I wrote, a, I wrote a piece for Esquire magazine about what it was like to be on that movie set. And I remember... If you watch the scene of the of the call for the girl and, and how we can't intubate her and it ends up she ends up dying, um, the whole thing was filmed in reverse. And so you'll if you look carefully at it, you see the snow actually rising instead of falling. And uh, it was uh, the uh, and so it ended up filming a resurrection. So. In, in the making of the movie, um, she, she actually gets up, you know, and comes back to life, although he ends up switching it. But that's what I saw. Just little surreal moments like that. I think I had ended up I think I ended up reading that and I found out about that being filmed in reverse. And I must have seen that movie 10 or 15 times before I knew that. And now I look, I tell people after it's over, I was like, do you notice the f snow falls up? They're like, what? And I was like, now watch it again. Watch how she walks funny. Watch how they do the innovation. Watch it. And I'm like, it's, it's in reverse. And people are like, I don't know why that makes it so much better. It's awesome. That's unbelievable. And I was like, man, it's, it's great. I said, but think about how they act. And what you, it's crazy how you just said about the resurrection end of it. I said, look, when they look at the entire story, 
they filmed it in reverse. They had to do the whole scene in reverse. So she started laying down and then got back up and walked backwards. And then when you look, it kind of looked funny while they're doing it. I said, but you get the, do you get the idea? It, the whole movie is about, he couldn't save her and it, what he's dealing with. I said, and look, she's con- This is how they had to film it to get that point across. So it's great to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Including the actors sort of lip syncing the reverse. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think it was about, uh, you know, he's so good at capturing uh, the sort of hallucinatory qualities of, of flashbacks, you know, which is what he's really going through. The, uh, the soundtrack gets a lot of accolades too, like in the typical Martin Scorsese end of it, where it's always like people are like, why does he pick that? Why does he pick that music to go with that? It never seems to fit. But when you really watch it, it absolutely fits. Like people, people go on. I've heard people go on and on about that, about the movie. They're like, it's one of the, you know, most eclectic soundtracks. It's like, but watch when he puts the music in. It's perfect. You know, it's like the simple, there's a really simple scene where he's riding with Mary Burke in the back of the ambulance. And they're playing 10,000 Maniacs. These are days. People are like, Martin Scorsese, 10,000 Maniacs. It doesn't go. Uh, you know, are you, are you, but are you kidding me it's like watch, just watch the scene how it plays out it's a mundane ride to her house with that song uh, you know uh, all, and all the other right. stuff all the other stuff is now you open the opening song my favorite yeah. TB Sheets by Van Morrison and of course as he says he's always wanted to put that song into a film and like he finally found the match and, it, and it's perfect it, it's perfect when it opens like that too. And it's really hard to read the book and not hear the music when the scenes come up too from from the film. So, and that might just be me. That could just be me, but it works out. It works perfectly. So, well, great man. It's a phenomenal book. I think you did a great job. I'm looking forward to. I think in, when you sent me your bio, I said you're working on another one, right? You're working on your third book. Yeah, this is about um, rural EMS. <clears throat> And the uh, the last of that tribe of volunteers, um, and it's uh, I've been working up in uh, the Adirondacks in northern New York, small towns. <clears throat> I'm in a very small town today. You'll you can hear the radio going on in the background, but um, how different it is when you know the people, and you know their families, and you go in their houses and. Um, <clears throat> And also the different kind of EMS of, of an hour ride to the hospital. Not only that hour can be incredibly um, difficult, you know, when it's on a tough call, but also uh, those even routine calls and the stories you get and the, uh, the intimacy uh, with patients and their families that don't happen in New York. And I guess it's also this, it's a story of a, of a big car accident and how, how it, it can affect the entire town and certainly infect the first responders who were on it. But at the same time, I found that it's those EMS workers and firemen are, are the, the ones who, after it's over, can help not only heal themselves, but to heal those around them sort of the more about the the aftermath hopefully soon 
I'm trying to finish up the last few chapters right now. It's called the it'll be called the awful grace. Great. Um not to switch gears, I mean I'm absolutely excited about that. But can I can I switch gears a little bit to NYC Medics? Can we talk sure. about that real quick? Yeah. Awesome. 